Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. We are in uh, Luke chapter 2. If you would turn there in your Bibles with me, I'd appreciate that. Luke chapter 2. As you do, I need to actually go look at one of my scripture texts. I think it might have been wrongly referenced as I'm sitting here thinking about it. So you turn to Luke chapter 2, and I'll turn to my wrong wrong text. <clears throat> Nope, it's good. It's all good. Okay. So we're in Luke 2. We, uh, we have been on a journey, haven't we? We've started in November uh, on a, in a series called Written So That You Might Believe, and that comes from a passage of Scripture in John chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, really, that, that verse, it says this. It says, but these things are written, and it's talking about the accounts of Jesus of Christ, right? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. Uh, that is the crux of it all. That is the point of the Gospels, and they are to point to Jesus Christ. So we started in November with uh, what we would call kind of a harmonization of those Gospels. So we're, we're looking at the Gospels, and, and there, are, there are four different Gospels, and some of them have uh, individual accounts of different times, and, and some of them uh, give the same account of, of the same, or a different account, or similar accounts, of kind of the same time. So we look at the, that and we harmonize that to get a bigger picture of the life and work of Jesus. And in the end, it should all point us to Jesus. It all should point us to faith in Jesus. And that through our faith and belief in Christ, we would have life in his name. So we started that in November and we talked about the preeminence of Christ and we talked about the Trinity, the Godhead, right? And we moved in then uh, to the Advent because that's what this is the first part of the gospel is the Advent of Christ and the Advent of John. We see John the baptizer born and then we see Jesus born. And we just came out of that season of Christmas and of Advent, where we saw Christ's birth. And, and today, unfortunately, this is our last sermon this season, at least, in the series. And we're looking at Christ's boyhood. So uh, after today, we'll switch gears into another, uh, another opportunity. And then next fall, we'll come back to Written So That You Might Believe, and we'll pick up the, the story uh, of Christ and the, and, the, and the ministry of Christ as we see John the Baptist coming uh, in, in ministering and baptizing. And then we see Jesus coming and being baptized and then being tempted in the wilderness. So it's going to be a great time next fall kind of pick up where we leave off today. But today we kind of come to the culmination of, of Christ's boyhood. So he's, he's been talked about as eternal and, and co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit, that he is equally God, that nothing had been created without him. We know that he has been from forever and he will be to forever. But then we saw Christ, right, came down, condescended into hu human history and time and put on flesh and became a man. And we saw that with the birth of Christ and that we saw that he was both fully God and fully man. And he was fully man, so he was able to die for our sins in our place. Uh, but he was fully God, and he was sinless. So he didn't have to die for himself. He died for us. And because he was fully God, he also rose from the dead, not letting, not letting uh, Satan, sin, death conquer him, but he instead conquered them. So today we're looking at Christ's boyhood. So we, we've seen him kind of grow up a little bit, and there's not much to say. You know, I, I'm a former youth pastor, right? So when I went to look at text and scripture, say, well, what does it say about being a teenager, right? What, did, what was Jesus like when he was a teenager? This is the section of scripture you go to. And here's what it is. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That's all we got, right? After that, it's all his adult life. I mean, there's 18 years after this of silence before his ministry begins, that we don't know what happened. All we know is that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. So that's why I tell the kids, we're going to grow in wisdom, we're going to grow up strong, we're going to grow in favor with God and men. And what does that look like? Well, there's a lot that looks like, right? So today we're going to look at Christ's boyhood, and we're going to look at some key components 
of spiritual growth that he went through <clears throat> that I think we can also go through ourselves in order to grow spiritually strong as Jesus did. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into the text. We'll read the text in its entirety. That's Luke 2, 40, 2, 40 through uh, 52. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be here today. We're grateful uh, to celebrate the Savior. God, it has always been and always will be all about Jesus. So we thank you that, that we have received grace upon grace from Christ, that we have a Savior who has gone to the cross and has done what we should have done ourselves, but God could never pay fully, but he paid it in full. And God, it's, the wrath of God has now been satisfied because of Jesus, and we are so thankful. We, we stand and sit here in awe and amazed at who you are. God, as we open your word now, as we uh, look to the power in your word, God, we ask that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to be receptive. God, that we, we would ask that you would challenge us in ways that we need to be challenged, that you would help change us, that, God, we would be conformed into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people. Well, today we're going to look at uh, this text. We're going to break it apart and, and look at, I think, three components, key components of Jesus' growth during that adolescent phase, during that, that time. Uh, now, in, in saying that, there's probably a lot we won't cover, and you should study on your own. Uh, certainly in the back of your sermon notes, there, there's a discussion guide that you can go home, and there's more verses to read and, and talk about within your own uh, family or in your, within your own small group. So we're going to break this down into three different areas. Uh, first key component of the growth we see is this, that, that Jesus was immersed in the richness of God's covenant. That's number one. Jesus was immersed in the richness of God's covenant. Now, I know that's a lot of big words and a lot of words to stumble over. Uh, let's just break that down a little bit. Immersed, right? He was, he was all in. He was completely surrounded by, right? So everywhere he went, everything he did was about God's covenant. I mean, he was in a family of some faithful people who loved God and loved his word. So he was always in and around it. Okay, he was immersed in what? In the richness of God's covenant. Now, I, I, I made that, it's kind of different. I could say, well, he was immersed in the richness of God's word. Well, it was deeper than just God's word, wasn't it? In the richness of God's covenant. Because God, what we're talking about when we talk about God's covenant, remember we talk about hesed love, right? What is that? That hesed love is that faithful, steadfast, enduring love of God. The love of God that is in line with his covenant-keeping promise for you and for me. 
That's what we're talking about. So the richness of God's covenant is what he was immersed in. It wasn't just a bunch of rituals and traditions for the sake of rituals and traditions. It was rituals or traditions and God's word. It was all of that for the sake of knowing God more and trusting in God's covenant more deeply. And God's covenant was rich, as we'll see. Let's look at this text, the first part of it, verses 41 through 47. I want to show you three different components within this area of, of the richness of God's covenant. How, how is he immersed? There's kind of three different ways, little subcategories, A, B, and C. The first way was with his parents' faithfulness. He was immersed in it because of his parents' faithfulness. Here's what we see. Uh, every year, it says, every year. What did it say? Every year, his parents traveled. Interesting about that, right? His parents went every year, 80 miles from Nazareth up to Jerusalem to, to go and celebrate Passover. And now it was, that's faithful parents, right? And, and you're called to do that. Good Jewish families would do that. That's, that's obeying. <clears throat> but it wasn't required for the mom, the woman to go, the wife. It was required for the man to go. So here we see that Mary and Joseph both attend. And now, if you look back in our, in our series, you've seen very, very deep faithfulness and commitment from both Mary and Joseph. You see, they go not only uh, to meet the standard that God gives them, they go above and beyond. That's the kind of parents they are. So every year, they would both go up and travel to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. So again, they both, they go up. Now, why does it say 12? Well, 13 years old was kind of that, that adult manhood age. And what happened at that point, they, that Jesus would then become a son of the covenant or a son of the law. Where he, not a son-in-law, right? Maybe it's a someone, but a son of the law. And he would be under the direct authority of God in the Scripture now. He would be under accountability of that, that he was now accountable to God and to the traditions himself as a man. So he's 12 years old, and probably when he was 11 years old, he might have went up too. Dads would take their kids up ahead of time because you want to prepare them. Listen, Jesus, you need to be in here because next year, this is all you. So Jesus comes up with them at 12 years old. And then you're there, and you have Passover happening, and that's one day. And then the next seven days are the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's all prescribed in Scripture. We'll take a look at some of those Scriptures in a minute. But you have this eight-day festival and celebration that's going on. You were required to go to Passover. You weren't required to stay for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Most people would come. They'd be there for Passover and maybe a day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread or two, and then they'd leave and they'd go home. Look at these parents. It says in verse 43, after those days were over, right? What does that, that says they stayed for the entire time. They wanted to get the full effect. How, why? Because that immerses themselves and their family, their children in God's covenant love. You're, you're not only there at Passover and, and sacrificing the lamb and you're, you're making sure that, that the atonement is there and you're thinking about the atonement that God offered at Passover, uh, the original Passover, and what he's going to offer through the, the unblemished lamb eventually through Christ. You're there with the Feast of Unleavened Bread as well. And then you, at the end of that time, you're celebrating in worship. At the last day, you're worshiping and throwing all your praise to God. It's this huge culmination of it at the end. So these parents stayed. They were faithful parents. They stayed until they were, it was all done. And then as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Now I want to just pause real quick. We're not going to talk a lot about this. There's a lot of conspiracy theories or whatever you want to call it. Jesus, he was, he was a sinner there. See, he sinned. He didn't sin. Scripture is very clear Jesus didn't sin. So we have to assume that this is not sin. And what does the text say? It says that they, they were heading out, they were returning, the boy stayed behind, but his parents didn't know it. There was no like, I'm leaving, I'm running away, I'm not obeying you. It was, they just stayed, he stayed behind, and they didn't know. Why didn't they know? Now you're thinking, well, these parents are, you know, incompetent. They don't know what's going on. They're not caring for their children. This is Passover. 
their whole town probably caravaned with them, right? It, and, and really, when you say it takes a village to raise, it does. It takes a village. So you have friends and cousins and, and other neighbors and people. This caravan is a safe place, and some go a little faster than others, but ultimately they will convene at night, and they will camp together for safety, and, and there's safety in numbers, and the village raises the kids. So whoever he was with on the way down, he's probably with them again. There was no reason for concern until they got there that night and said, where's Jesus? I thought, I thought you had him. I, no, I thought you had him. No, I, I don't know. Someone has him. He's gone. So they began looking among the relatives and friends. Again, this is really important. If we're talking about the faithfulness of parents as a way to immerse their children in the covenant traditions of God or the covenant of God, they, they didn't just do it themselves, right? It wasn't a home group where they stayed home and said, it's just us. I don't want you to be influenced by anybody else. It takes a village. Why do they look among the, the, the friends? Why do they look among the, their relatives? Because that's where Jesus would be. It should be the same with us. Listen, if you're a parent now of a, of a child that's in school or in your home, maybe he's 25, I don't know, a parent of a child in home, immerse them, not only with you and your faithfulness, but with the faithfulness of your church family, the people that love God and will point them to love God as well. Immerse them. Make sure they're always around the faith. That's how we grow. That's how we grow strong spiritually, right? So parents, we need to be encouraged to do that. Maybe you don't have kids at home anymore. Listen, parents, you can still do that with your grandkids. You can still do that with your grown adult kids. Trust me, I'm a grown adult kid, and my dad still does that for me. The conversations we have, the growth I can, I can have through time spent with him or in the Word with him or talking about the things of God is invaluable to my spiritual growth. The faithfulness of, a, of his parents is, is shown here. So that was one aspect of, of his immersion in the richness of God's covenant. Then there's another aspect. It's covenant traditions. It's covenant traditions. What were they going to Jerusalem for? Passover, right? This is a covenant tradition. This is huge. This is the celebration of, of God saving the Israelites in Egypt when, when God's angel of death passed over them. Why did it happen? Because God said, I'm going to make a way. I'm, I'm gonna, here's the last thing. Pharaoh's not really budging, so I'm going to come in and I'm going to kill the firstborns. Here, here it comes. But you can be spared, you and your family, if you would sacrifice a, a spotted, unblemished lamb and put that blood on the doorpost of your home. And when the angel comes over, he'll see the blood, and he will pass over you. And because of the blood of the unblemished lamb that was shed, there's atonement in that, and that you are rescued because of the blood of the lamb. That talks and sounds like something else, doesn't it? The foreshadowing to Jesus, and we know that. So, so the Israelites, the Jews, they knew this. This was deep in their tradition. They were to do this. They were to come to, to, the, to Jerusalem, to pilgrim there. I want you to understand the immersion of this, though, okay? It's one thing for me to turn on Na National Geographic and watch about a different culture with my kids and say, look how awesome this is, or look how interesting this is, or how different this is. It's a whole nother thing to take them there. Because when you're there, you are immersed in culture, aren't you? Language is different, customs are different, the food is different, the sounds are different, the smells, everything is different. It's a different culture. And that's immersion. Now, think about what happened here. You have Passover happening, and you have in Jerusalem probably an additional 200,000 people coming to Jerusalem for Passover. It is just completely filled, completely filled. People let people in their houses. You stay with me. We're going to celebrate Passover. Uh, even though there was, there, they got something for that as well. They were, they were um, uh, reimbursed for that in, in ways. And it was amazing that they, they had this many people there. But think of the immersion. You're all there. What are you there for? We're all there for Passover. 
that's all we're talking about is Passover, Passover, and we're getting the lamb ready, and the dads are talking about how to do this, and they're getting ready to go to the temple. And then imagine that day of Passover. You talk about immersed in covenant tradition. You walk up to the temple with your lamb and with thousands and thousands of other people and thousands and thousands of other animals, one after another, being killed and the blood being drained into buckets and, and that blood being poured or, or splattered all over the altar for the atonement. What a, what a picture that was. What a bloody mess that was. I know Tom mentioned that a little bit last time, but this was a picture of God's covenant love for us. And Jesus was now there seeing this in its, in its fullness. And it was, he was totally being immersed in cultural or in the, in the uh, covenant traditions of his faith. I want to read a couple passages out of Exodus and Leviticus that describe this and describe the depth of this. Exodus 12, 24 and following says, Keep this commandment permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. This one of Passover. When you enter the land uh, that the Lord has given you or has promised, you are to observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and did this, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. They're saying, listen, we're going we're to observe this so we would remember how the Lord provides. And we can see that through the Abrahamic covenant. We can see that through the Davidic covenant. We see God providing for his people and that there would be a day where the Messiah would come and that he would be the lamb that would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be the one that was crucified in our place. His blood would be spilled where ours deserved to be. Leviticus mentions this as well in chapter 23 and following in verses 5 through 8. Uh, these are the Lord's appointed times, the sacred assemblies, that you are to proclaim them at the appointed times. The Passover to the Lord comes in the first month at twilight on the 14th day uh, of the month. The festival of unleavened bread to the Lord is on the 15th day. So right there, the Passover and then the next day is unleavened bread. For seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you are to hold a sacred assembly and you are not to do any daily work. You are to present, present a fire offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the seventh day there will be a sacred assembly and do not do any daily work. So there's this, the prescription of this. And you can go into depth. I encourage you to go in depth with this on your own and study this. But th this, is, this is the tradition that was not just a tradition for tradition's sake. These were traditions that were, were there to present and show the covenant love and amazing love of God and that they would worship God because of it. So not only were his parent, his, was his parents' faithfulness a way that he was immersed, but also the covenant traditions that he was involved in, he was being immersed in that, but he was also immersed in God's word. Let's go back and look at the text in Luke again. <clears throat> Picking up our story, uh, where were we? Uh, 45. <clears throat> when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. And after three days, so here's what we think this is. One day is going, the camp, right? Two days is coming back. And the third day is the day they found him in Jerusalem, all in Jerusalem, okay? After three days, they found him where? Here's the, again, immersing himself in God's word and the disciplines of God's word. He, he was in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his answers, or his understanding and answers. Uh, really interesting thing here. Really, I mean, first of all, Jewish Jewish children, especially Jewish boys, were well immersed in the in uh, the Pentateuch. They they memorized Scripture, and with the hopes of memorizing it so well that they would have a rabbi say, "Come follow me. I want you to follow me. You you have promise. I can see this in you. 
come follow me and we're going we're gonna to build you up into a priest or into, a, into the, the work of uh, the ministry, right? So that, these kids knew the word of God and they were quoting it all the time. And, and they, they took it seriously as parents to do that. So Jesus knows the word and then he's sitting among the teachers because he wants instruction, right? You can't get immersed in instruction if you don't sit under instruction, if you don't go to learn, if you don't go to find instruction somewhere. So he, he's sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, what was interesting as I read through the commentaries, and you look at these words, this describes the scene, right? We, we think of, of Jesus as the teacher, right? Jesus is the master. He's the good teacher. He knows it all. In this setting, Luke is showing that Jesus is submissively immersing himself in instruction and having dialogue back and forth. Not there to make fun of, like he normally does, right? Like he'll point out the Pharisees' like total hypocritical attitude, right? And their, their non-understanding of Scripture. He's not doing that here. In fact, Luke uses the word teachers to speak about these Pharisees and these scribes, these lawyers that he would later use in the Scripture. They're teachers. The same word, and I want you to understand this from this point on, after this account, Luke never uses that word teachers for any of the scribes or Pharisees again. It is only reserved for Jesus and mentioned of John the baptizer also. So we understand that he's, he's putting in this scene saying Jesus is learning. Jesus is growing in knowledge and in wisdom. And he's having dialogue about scriptures because he knows them so well. He's been immersed in them and he's immersing himself there. So he's sitting there uh, uh, listening and, and asking questions because that was policy too. Like you could go and the students would sit and they'd ask questions. They'd talk. But think about Passover was this brought in the priest of priests. I mean, the, the, the big shots were in town now. And normally on this, on this day, you're going to get some awesome priests that you would normally never see there at the temple or have, have ability to answer or ask questions with, right? So he's there dialoguing with probably some big shots as well. And they're all amazed and astonished of his understanding and answers. Jesus was well-versed in the word of God. You think about the hugeness of this event. You think about the, the, the immersion that Jesus is, is experiencing there. That's part of growth, right? Immer immersing yourself in God's covenant promises. Isaiah 11 one through two, we, we read this a few weeks ago. It talks about Jesus being of the line of David. He says, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is the next part, though. So it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of reverence or fear of the Lord. See, Jesus knew the word and he yielded to God's Spirit. And, and what God's Spirit grew in him as he immersed himself there was wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength and knowledge and reverence and fear of God. That's what we need to grow in as well. Now, it, you can look at this and read about this later on, but this is an interesting point where Jesus, Jesus, listen, he was born a baby. He cried and needed to be fed and needed to be rocked to sleep. He had to needed for his diapers changed. This is, he didn't have it all together. There was a point in time where the God-man, right, when he emptied himself and didn't grab onto his authority, needed to be taught and, and learn. He had to learn how to learn the trade of his dad. He needed to learn the scriptures and, and, and reason with that. And how did he do that? Well, God the Spirit was the one who came, came upon him, and God the Spirit is the one who rested on him and gave him the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Why did he reason so well? Because he immersed himself, not only in the Word, but in the Spirit of God, and, and it counseled him. But at this moment, there was something bigger going on. We're going to see that in a minute. But So how does this look for us? What does it look like for us? Jesus places himself in a position to be totally immersed by God's, the richness of God's covenant. And he grows. What about for you and I? 
See, fruit and growth come from the power of the Holy Spirit in our continual immersion into the richness of Christ. We can grow too. I want to read a passage out of 2 Peter. Turn there with me if you would. 2 Peter chapter 1. I think there's a lot of parallels here that Peter starts talking about. He talks, talks about this, this standard that we should have when we, when we live and what our life should look like and what it looks like in Christ, and, and there's a lot of fruit being produced. But I think there's a lot of parallels to what we're seeing in Jesus and, and this idea of having a family around him, right, in a village, uh, of, of being aware of the, of the cultural, I'm sorry, the, uh, the customs, the covenant customs that are going on and being a part of those, and then being in part of God's Word. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 12. So he describes the fruit produced in obedience to Christ. And then he says this. He says, therefore, I will always remind you about these things. So Peter's like, I'm going to remind you, even though you know them and are established in the truth, you know how, you know how, you know how right? So he said, I'm going to remind you often. Don't we need that? Don't we need God's reminder over and over of the solid truths that he has given us? We need to be re-encouraged over and over with those truths. And I, I hope you would want that. You don't just think it and know it and write it down and now it's there. We lose it. And we go into a world that wants to rip all that away from us. He goes on. He says, I, I think it is right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent as the Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made it clear to me. And I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. Listen, Peter was totally involved with people and said, I want you to be reminded over and over. I want you to be immersed in the richness of God's grace and the depth of God, the doctrine of God. So you don't forget it. You don't lose it. Look at the next verse. For we did not follow. This is the, this is the counter to not being immersed. We did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He goes on, he says, for, we received the, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from uh, the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard, his, heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. We also have the prophetic word. So he's talking about the reminders and the, the solid state that this doctrine is in. He's like, remember this stuff. And he says this, We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. We have the Word of God, so we have each other to remind us and give us grace and, and accountability. And we have the Word of God and the prophecies of God and all that entails with the, with the traditions there. Strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I, I want that. I want that every day. I want, I want that that sun to come up, Jesus to come up, and dawn, and the morning star rise in my heart. I want that to be the affections that, that I, I place on Him. I don't want to have affections for anything else. How do I do that? I immerse myself in the reminder. I immerse myself in the Word. I immerse myself in that covenant traditions that God has given us. What are some of those things? Well, we talk about immersing ourselves with people, right? First of all, I said it, with a family. Do your very best. Do diligence. To, to immerse your children and your home in God, in God's Word, and in faithfulness to God. That's so important. It can't just be on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. It has to be every day that your kids can be immersed in that faithfulness, and that's how they're going to grow, and that's how we will grow with one another. It also means gathering together, making it a point to gather together as believers like we do on Sunday mornings, to be here, to, to rub shoulders, to be iron sharpening iron, to encourage, to pray for 
I've had, I've had great times with you already this morning in this early service and, and this morning. So many prayer requests have been shared. I get to pray for you, put you on my list, right? I get to, get to be encouraged by the praise uh, report in your life or something God is doing. That's what happens here. And it's not just a wishy-washy, oh, come as you are, it's okay, we're not going to bother you. We ought to get down in the trenches with, the, with each other and give grace and give truth so that we can become more like the Son, Jesus Christ. That we can grow up in Him, but it takes being immersed here. It also takes being immersed in, in groups of people, smaller groups than this. We have small groups signups going on all month long. You can sign up on the kiosk for different groups. Listen, the majority of growth does not happen in rows. It happens in circles face-to-face with one another, when you're actually going to be vulnerable and bear a burden or share a burden and get prayer or get support or get encouragement or get a verse and discuss what God is doing. That's where growth happens. Immerse yourself in that. We also talk about the uh, immersing ourselves in tradition, right? What are some of the traditions that we follow, right? Well, one of the things we did this last year, we had a Seder dinner, which was the Passover dinner, the Passover meal, and it was described because all of the elements of the Passover meal point to the perfect unblemished Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Right, so it increases the richness of God's covenant love for us, right? Uh, one of the things, two, two of the other things we do. We, we celebrate and practice baptism. That's one of the traditions that we do. It's not just a tradition for tradition's sake. Uh, I'm going to get dunked because someone told me I needed to. No, I'm going to in response and obedience to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to go in, in faith, trust, trusting Him, that, that as I, as I uh, go in and get baptized, I'm going to come out of the water and, and this symbol of newness of life and resurrection because of Jesus is going to be the theme of the day. And that whatever that, that obedience is, it's going to point to Jesus over and over. It's an amazing testimony. And if you haven't done that, get it, it's immersed, right? Get immersed in that tradition of baptism. Get baptized. We also celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? Every five weeks at our church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not just eating a cracker and drinking some juice. It's coming together to humble our hearts before Him who gave everything for us. We humble ourselves and say, You're the one who offered your body. You're the one who offered your blood, who spilled your blood, who shed your blood. You're the one who died where I should have died. But because you're God, you rose victoriously. And I celebrate, remember, and I trust you. That's what it does. We point to the Savior. It's not just tradition. It shouldn't be. We immerse ourselves in that so we continue to remember and we can continue to grow like Christ grew. Number two. One of the key components to Christ's growth is that he understood who he was. Let's continue on in our text in Luke 2. Look at verses 48 through 50. When his parents saw him, they, (laughs) can you imagine that, parents? They saw him and like, the flood of emotion. I'm so happy. I'm so mad. I'm so happy, but I'm so mad. I'm going to kill you. Like, no, no, it's Passover. It's already in. Like, later on. You imagine that flooding through your heart. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? I'm sure she said it in a different way. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, again, there's no... There's no wrongdoing on the parents having neglected their child. There's no wrongdoing in sin in Jesus by staying behind. It said he, stood, he stayed behind. He says, we've been searching for you. He says in verse 49, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? 
Now, let me, let me break this down a little bit. I don't think he said, why are you looking for me? Because parents should be looking for their kid that's lost. Basically, he's saying, why did, why did you look everywhere else? Because this is where I would be. Now, there's a couple things that are really important to, to Jesus understanding who he, who he is. And, and it'll translate for us as well. Jesus, of course, being the Son of God. So Jesus is there. He's 12-year-old Jesus. He's at the temple. He's having an exchange with the teachers there. He's discussing things, and people are amazed and astonished at his understanding. His parents show up, and, and she says, Son, why have you treated us like this? Listen to what she says. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So Jesus, your father and I, right? Joe and me, we've been searching for you. And what, is, what does Jesus say? Let, let's, let's look at the break here. He understands who he is. He says, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that it was necessary for me, like I had to be here, but it was necessary for me to be where? In my father's house. Same word for father is used as the words used for Joseph just a minute ago. But there's a break there. He's not talking about Joseph, is he? He's talking about God the Father. He is now understanding that he has a different father than Joseph. His father is the father that's in heaven. Now, what was so big about that, this event, it, it wasn't just like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my father's will. Like We, we would say that now. We, we've, we're even encouraged to pray what? We pray our father in heaven. right? We, we call him our father, and we'll see that in a few minutes too. Before this utterance from Jesus, identifying him as the son of God, that word father was never used towards God. It was always, they, they understood God is the, our father as it pertains to creation. God is the father of Israel, right? He's our father of Israel. But no one would say he's my father or daddy. But all that changed, didn't it? It changed when Jesus said, he's my father. And, and here's what we don't get that they did. I want you to understand the difference here. So Jesus is saying, I am God's son. In this culture, you were called a son, usually, like, or you called the father the father when you were an adult. And that sonship and father relationship happened because you are now equally in nature with the father. The inheritance was yours, the land was yours, the, the chores were yours, the responsibility was yours. It was yours. Before that time, you were just a child. You're, you're the child, the son or daughter, but you're a child. But that father relationship wasn't the same. Here's what it means. Child, or I'm sorry, father does not indicate an origin relationship. It indicates a nature relationship. Like this is the nature of who I am. I am the son of, uh, it was used for Barnabas. He was a son of encouragement. He didn't come from encouragement, right? Not origin. He was an encourager. When you're the son of God, you are equal in nature with the Father. And in fact, let's, let, let me show you a couple things here. I mean, first of all, Jesus is the undisputed son of God, right? There's no one, no one else that can claim that same equality with God. And we see this very much in Scripture um, played out. We've seen it in, in the text here with Mary as the angel came and told Mary before Jesus' birth that you will have a son and, you're, and you're, he will be called the son of God. That was Luke 1. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of God and claimed that God was his Father. Mark opened his gospel with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
We have John the Baptist. We have Nathaniel, the 12 apostles. We have Martha. We have Paul. Uh, we have the writer of Hebrews. We have the apostle John. Uh, all claiming Jesus' divine sonship. It's great. It's awesome. Okay, he's equal with the Father. That this is why he was killed. We'll see a verse here in a minute. If that wasn't enough, though, to convince us that he was equal with the Father, that he was one in nature with God, the Father. And, and, and well, those guys all say that. Of course they do. Even Satan and the demons and the Roman centurion acknowledged that Christ Jesus was the Son of God. You have the enemies of Jesus right, and the friends of Jesus and Jesus all saying that he's the Son of God. Now what's left is for Satan to deceive everybody else and say, oh, no, no, don't, don't believe that, don't believe that. And that's what he does. People won't even go there. But again, this is not about origin. This is about nature. In the technical sense, it came to mean that he was equal with or one with the Father. Not born of. He wasn't a creation of the Father. He wasn't something else. He was equal with the Father. I want to read a couple of verses that show you this as well. Um, so we have, he knows who he was, right? This, this is how he grew. He immersed himself in this idea of, of the richness of God's covenant, and then he understood who he was. Um, so in this term, again, this term of her father uh, refers to Jesus and establishes that he is the same essence, the same nature, has the same rights and privileges as God himself. Now let's talk about his mission. That's, that's it, who he is. What was his mission? John 6, I'll, I'll read some verses in John. You don't have to turn there. John 6, 38 through 40. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. This is the will he's wanting to do, right? The will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and that I will raise him up on the last day. John 4, 34, he says, My food, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5, 17 to 23, or 17 and 18, actually. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews, be, listen, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Well, wait, what? We missed something, right? Go back. He said, My father is still working, and I am working also. The Jews now are, your open ears are hearing Jesus say that God is his father and that he is God's son. So they, this is why the Jews began trying to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So let's not confuse ourselves with who Jesus is. Jesus is fully God. He is God the Son, and He is co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus continually professed that about Himself. People profess that about Him. The Word professed it. The Spirit professes it. And look at verse 30, or sorry, verse 50 of Luke. But they did not understand what He said to them. They, His parents. Why? Well, I'm, let me read that passage out of John. John 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through Him. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. Not only Jewish people, his parents. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Now listen, this is, this is important. If you, have, if you fell asleep or whatever, wake up, listen. This is the important part. This is back to the anchor of what the Scripture is all about. 
so his own didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. And see, for you and I, yeah, we better have an amen there, right? There, there has to be in us this, we're so immersed in, in, in Christ, we know who we are. And not only do we know who we are, we know whose we are. That we can believe in the Messiah, in Jesus, and we can receive him because he is God come to earth in flesh to die in our place, a death we, we deserve to die. And he died for us. So we have to make some decisions. For, for some of us, so we know Jesus grew, and as he grew, he knew who he was. But for you and I, there's two categories. We have to know who we are and know whose we are. For some of us, we have, we've come to a place, I know who I am. I am a sinner, a sinner, a sinner, and I am saved by Jesus' grace. And now I'm in Christ, and I am a new creation. That's who I am. But for some, they get to that place, and they, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know if I can trust in who he is. And what, what you're saying is you really don't know who you are either. You don't know and understand how sinfully separated from God you are. But Jesus came humbly to pursue you and draw you into a relationship with him. So you and I have to make a decision. Is Jesus who he said he was? And, and, and we talked about this before, but it's so silly. People, oh, no, I don't, think he, I don't think he's who he said he was, but he's a good teacher. How, if you just tell, told me he was a liar, what's good about that? Jesus claimed to be equal with God and that he can forgive sin, that he's the only way to God. He's not a good person if it's not true. So you have to make the decision. We all have to make that decision. Is Jesus who he said he is? Is he the Lord of all? Or is he lying about it? Or some crazy person? That, and if he is, we should have nothing to do with him. But if he is not lying and he's not crazy, then he is Lord of all and we, we owe it to him to worship Him, and to believe and receive the gift He, he offers us. So who are we? I, I mentioned that the word Father was never used until right now, that personal relationship with, with the Father. And see, when we are in Christ, we are also sons and daughters of God, that we are adopted into, grafted into that family. First John 3, 1 says, See the great love the Father has given to us that we should be called God's children. You and I now can call God Father. He can be called Father by us. 2 Corinthians says this, and if you want to talk about your identity and who you are in Christ, chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has believed, if anyone has trusted Christ as Savior, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. See, we have to understand who we are. We're sinners separated from God because of our sin, but saved by Jesus because he is God. And then we understand whose we are and our identity is not our own anymore. Now we are new and Jesus has made all things new. Amen. He understood who's, who he was and whose he was. Do you understand that about yourself? Finally, number three. A component of Christ's growth is that he was humbly obedient. He was humbly obedient. Look at our text again, Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52. All this took place, and then it says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. He just said, you're not my dad anymore. Imagine the, maybe the slight that Joseph felt at that moment. Like, oh, okay, and they didn't understand. But he went back, and he was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom 
and in stature and in favor with God and people. Again, his, his wisdom, his understanding, his knowledge, God, God's spirit, we saw that in, in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, he, God's spirit was on him and he was increasing in wisdom. In stature means he grew up. He ate some meat and potatoes and put some meat on his bones. He worked hard and, and, and grew up as a man physically in stature, right? And then in favor with God and with people. We'll get to that in a minute. That's a really, that's kind of the key to this. I want to look at Philippians. It's chapter 2, and I want to see this humble obedience that we see in Christ. See, he was humbly obedient because it was the will of the Father. He was humbly obedient to his earthly father because it was the will of his heavenly father. Philippians chapter 2 says this about his humility. He, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. It goes on, though. It didn't stop there, does it? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that humble obedience is what we need also to grow. We need to humbly obey. and God, whatever the cost, whatever you have for me, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to lean into you. I'm going to learn from you, and I'm going to obey you. Jesus did that. He said, I'm going to obey. The first part of his obedience, go back to Nazareth. Obey Joe and, Joe and Mary. Be a, be a good kid, a respectable kid. Learn from them. Grow. That was his first part of humble obedience. Jesus, the Son of God, who just announced it to everyone, went back to Nazareth humbly under his parents' authority. But ultimately, he humbled himself there so he could humble himself on the cross. Luke 9 says, Jesus says, It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. See, he, he humbled himself obediently because he had to be killed for us. He had to go to the cross for us. See, in that first initial humility and humbling before the Father and before his parents, that was the, the start of that humility, right? And that humility got deeper and deeper and deeper and farther until it put him on the cross. And it was necessary because it was necessary for our forgiveness. Hebrews does a good job of, de uh, of describing this. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, it said, During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, right? Although he was God, equal with God, and he was here, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Some people say, well, why, why didn't Jesus just come as a 33-year-old man, live that week or two and die and take, just be done? Why do you have to suffer and, and live so long? It was necessary. He learned obedience from what he suffered. He continued to deeply and humbly obey throughout his whole life. In verse 9 of this passage says this, After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, I don't want to be confusing here. The scripture is not confusing either. What this means, after he, after he was perfected, what it doesn't mean is that he was imperfect and became perfect. Here's what it means. After he had proven his perfection to all, proven that he could withstand every temptation and every trial, proven that he could be without sin, once he had proven it, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And that was proven over a lifetime of suffering, a lifetime of temptation. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He became the once and for all high priest, that there was no one else that needed to offer any sacrifice. He was the ultimate final sacrifice for all of us. He was our perfect lamb sacrifice, and it was necessary to obey, and it was necessary for him to suffer and die for us. Obedience also provided favor. We saw that in that verse. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
This word favor could be also translated grace. And I want us to think about this for us too. As we, as we learn and lean into this, as we want to be humbly obedient to grow in our faith, there is a grace we must be giving to one another and a grace we must be getting from others as well. We want to grow in wisdom and in knowledge and, and in favor with God, that God is well pleased, and, that, and favor with man, with each other. That there's an encouragement from one another. There's a submission to one another. This is the passage out of Ephesians I want to read, uh, the last one for the day. It says this in Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Pay careful attention then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. It sounds like Jesus, right? It sounds like Jesus wanting to obey his Father and do his Father's will and not be foolish, but be wise. It says, don't get drunk by wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Right? It talks about behavior. It talks about our attitude of our heart. What do we desire? What do we treasure the most? And it goes on, it says, we should be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in reverence or fear of Christ. See, there should be this give and take back and forth that you and I share. There should be a submission to one another. If we're going to grow in favor with God, we have to humble ourselves with Him and with others. And we submit ourselves to Him and to others. And we humbly serve each other with songs and spiritual songs and hymns and support and encouragement and with grace upon grace and with Scripture and truth upon truth. That's what God's church is supposed to be about. That you and I, if we would be humbly obedient to Christ, we would grow in our faith. And if we would humbly be obedient to one another and submissive to one another and encouraging one another, we would all grow as well. See, there's favor and grace in our relationship with God as we humbly submit to Him and obey. There's also favor and grace expressed in our relationship with others in that same submission. We, like Jesus, must humbly and obediently submit ourselves to God. We must submit ourselves to God, our hearts to God, for His glory and for the benefit of the body of Christ. That's what happens when we humbly submit. We grow in favor with God and in favor with people. Overall, when we look at Christ's growth, when we look at what we've, we've gone over already up to this point, we see uh, his growth during his boyhood. We see that his growth is an example for us, but it's also to show us who he is. So I hope that you have dealt with Christ and believed and embraced Christ for who he is, that once you have, that you and I would humble ourselves and follow his example. And overarching, again, I want to go back to our anchor verse. This is going to end and put a pause on our series until next fall. This has been written so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in His name. Let's stand and pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word and how powerful it is. It is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, God. And I know it, it, it splits the soul and spirit, and God, it penetrates there to convict us and challenge us. So God, I pray as we have heard your word this morning, that we would look at it as an opportunity for growth. That we would see Christ and how he modeled his own growth, Lord. But that, God, we would desire that as well. God, we would immerse ourselves 
in the richness of God's covenant with God's people. God, that we would cling to his word. God, we, we want to be his children who know whose we are and know who we are in Christ. God, help us to be obedient, to be humble, to be gentle, God, to be the body of Christ you've called us to be, loving one another and serving one another towards Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.